This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You are experiencing a multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. That's right. This is N-P-E-T. And I pause so you can wonder what all those letters signify. We are Nuestra Palabra Extraterrestrial. Why? Because our live events became a radio broadcast, which is referred to as Terrestrial Radio on 90.1 FM KPFT, your community station. But we are many other platforms now as well. So you will experience this live on social media. Thanks for joining us. And you will experience the video on fox26houston.com. The audio will air on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's community station. And I have to remind you, dear listeners, if you have a moment, please do try and review your budget and see if you can make a donation to the station, which is listener-sponsored. If you visit kpft.org, please click on the donation button and make a donation in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Your Say, so we can do our part to keep this amazing experiment in freedom of speech going. And, of course, we're going to wind up visiting you live as well. I'm Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante, and we're really excited to have on the air with us um, a dear friend, a major scholar, a major thinker in the nation, but he's in our own backyard, Dr. Jose Aranda, tenured professor at Rice University. First of all, thank you for joining us, Jose. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, great to be with you and great to be on the show. And uh, it's just a marvelous way to start the new year. Thank you so much. And we're going to be talking about your amazing book, The Places of Modernity in Early Mex-American Literature, 1848 to 1948. Really powerful book. And we're going to get to talk to you about the book. You're going to read from the work. But we're also going to find out more about your background, your trajectory. And, you know, I'm going to be very intentional because I, I know you so well. I think the world of you, but I want to also introduce you to maybe some folks that haven't been lucky enough to, to meet you. So I want to start off by reading your, your biography, if I may. Well, Dr. Aranda is a professor of Chicanx and American literature at Rice University. I need to pause there because Rice is such a prestigious university and for you to be a tenured professor there is really a statement to your work and part of the legacy of our community and the basically the, the, the trail that you're blazing. Um, you're the author of When We Arrive, A New Literary History of Mexican America from Arizona Press in 2003. You've written articles on 19th century Mexican-American literature and the Recovery Project, the future of Chicana, Chicano studies, and most recently undertaking an investigation of the relationship between modernity and Mexican-American writings entitled the Places of Modernity in Early Mexican Literature, 1848 to 1948. 
from the University of Nebraska Press, which is what we'll be talking about today. And you have a dual appointment in the departments of English and Modern and Classical Literature and Culture. You're a board member of Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage Project and also Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Appreciate that. And you're co-founder with another dear friend of Nuestra Palabra, Priscilla Ibarra, Dr. Priscilla Ibarra, uh, co-founders of Avanzamos, El Taller Chicana Chicano, an annual workshop focused on advanced scholarship in Chicanx studies sponsored by Rice University and the University of North Texas. In July 2020, you joined the Board of Trustees of Cristo Rey Jesuit College Preparatory in, in Houston. Fantastic. That's such a great program where students get a world-class education for free, but then they wind up working in different professional settings, not just to get the exposure, but build a network. So we may have to talk about that as well. And in, in 2022, along with Carmen Lamas, Yolanda Padilla, and John Alba Cutler, co-founded the edit, uh, you co-founded the journal Pasados, Recovering History, Imagining Latinidad at the University of Pennsylvania Press. And on the human side, besides <laughs> having four too many streaming services, <laughs> we got to find out your favorite shows. Uh, you also enjoy time with your family in Houston. You have a wonderful family uh, and who are privileged to know. Uh, for recreation, you love to drive your familia's 2018 GMC Savannah in the summertime. In 2021, you drove, is this a typo, 7,000 miles throughout the West? Is that a typo? Nope. All through. <laughs> wow. And they repeated much of that trip, plus added Waterloo, Ontario, Canada for another 7,600 miles in 2022. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Aranda, and thank you for all that you do for the community and all that you've done to reimagine our gente in this world. So, un abrazo grande, primeramente. Well, thank you. You're very generous. And um, again, I'm glad to be here. And uh, it's been a wonderful time to know you and your family as well since the, I think more or less the mid-90s, I think we've got. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a little while. And I do want to ask you about your background in Houston, but I got to ask you more about these 7,600 miles. <laughs> how, how, many, how many days is that? <laughs> it's not as much as you'd think it would be. Uh, I think the first summer, this we were uh, driving around to um, do interviews for Krista's project, Krista Comer, my wife. And so uh, she has a project called- oh, Brilliant. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, Living West as Feminist. And uh, we, we drove around um, meeting up with colleagues, scholars, of friends, feminist friends of hers. And the project was to um, uh, talk with them about their work, their scholarship, but more importantly, to talk about how they engage with the topic of feminism or as feminists in, in the places they live in the West. So we, we interviewed a lot of people that first summer in New Mexico and um, uh, Montana and California. And then this last summer, we finished uh, that project, uh, interviewing people in Oregon, in uh, Nebraska, and Waterloo, Canada. So you have to drive a lot to get in, <laughs> get to these people. And so it was a kind of uh, a COVID-inspired project to get reconnected, uh, to know where people live, as opposed to meeting people at conferences or 
hotel lobbies and things like that. But uh, we met a lot of cats and dogs and <laughs> nice, uh, nice uh, children as well. I love it. And to me, that sounds like a great dive into community cultural capital and really humanizing mm -hmm. folks. So right, fantastic. Right. We're going to have to follow up and, and do some interviews on that going uh, into the future. Um, but let's talk about your past because you are a homegrown hero. Eres del barrio. Eres, eres, you were a squinkler here in Houston, Texas. So tell folks about that because I'm very proud that you're, you're part of of our backyards, our gente, yeah. tu ombligo está aquí. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I'm a, a, I'm a homie, as they as they say, or they used to say. Uh, I was born in, I was literally born in Magnolia Oaks, uh, in, in the east end of Houston. Uh, I was born in the corner of Harrisburg and 75th, uh, when Parkview uh, Clinic was Parkview Hospital. And that's where I was born. My two brothers were born. My sister, the younger one, the youngest of our family, she was she was fancy. She got to be born uh, here at the medical center. So, uh, so she's all she was always special. But I but it, but I repeat that to say that the fact that I was born in Magnolia meant that there was a real barrio, and the barrio had all sorts of services, including uh, health services and uh, his own little hospital. And it's, if you know the barrio, I know you do, uh, Tony. It's right up against uh, it's between Golf Freeway on one side and uh, the Chip Channel on the on the other end. So uh, that's where I grew up. I went to uh, first schools I went to was uh, De Savala for kindergarten, and then Franklin Elementary for uh, first and second grade. And then at that point, uh, my parents wanted us to do the parochial route, so I went to Immaculate Heart of Mary right there uh, in the heart of Magnolia. And then from there, uh, we went we went to um, Blessed Sacrament in the second ward. And uh, from there, I went to St. Thomas High School. And, you know, I just kind of moved a little <laughs> westward until <you know? laughs> you know, I hit uh, St. Thomas. And then at that point, it's uh, the late 70s. And um, because of affirmative action and uh, uh, you know, good people, good teachers I had, good white teachers, good liberals I had. I ended up going to Yale um, and graduated from Yale University as an English major. And then I came back, uh, taught high school at uh, Strike Jesuit uh, wow. for a couple of years, uh, decided that I liked teaching, um, but that the, the mission of teaching young men required a lot more patience. <laughs> Then I had a lot more energy than I had, but I was really just wanted to go back to school. I really missed being in the classroom. So ended up going back east, this time to Brown University. And that's where I took my PhD uh, there at Brown University. And then um, one thing led to another and eventually I got the position here at Rice uh, back in 1994. And so I was really just, here at Rice as a professor, I was back home, right, mm -hmm. uh, with Krista and then our first son, Benito. But really, I'd just been here two or three years, and then I met you, really. And, and so it was really in that early period of, of coming to terms with having been away uh, from Houston to get this ed education, and then returning and returning with Krista and Benito, and then later Jesse was born. And then coming to terms with what Houston, how Houston had changed between, mm -hmm. in so many ways, between 1980 to the mid uh, mid 90s and that 15 year 
span, uh, Houston had changed tremendously. And I, and you were part of that change as well. You know what, too? Your, your trajectory touches on so many important moments historically. You alluded to affirmative action, um, which right now is being contested again. Um, looking back, what, what did it? What were the esperanzas of young Chicanas, Chicanos from the East End to get into Ivy League schools? You know, uh, at that time, you mentioned Yale, Brown. You're teaching at Rice. What were the esperanzas and possibilities of, of young Chicanas, Chicanos at that time to get into those schools? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's a great question because I think there's different. There, there were different conversations going on by the time I got to high school. One of the conversations was this older conversation from um, um, the Chicano movement and um, uh, uh, organizers and activists and all the all the stuff that was going on in the late '60s, from Head Head uh, Head Start um, to changing the how HISD segregated uh, students of color uh, to how uh, universities were starting to open up their admission processes, uh, whether it was Rice, which hadn't, which hadn't admitted a person of color really until the early 60s when they had to go to the uh, court to dissolve their charter and rewrite their charter, uh, compared to University of Houston, which opened up in the 1930s and catered to the broad um, ethnic uh, spectrum of Houston from the very start. So there was a lot going on there. But I think among, you know, the my generation, you know, that kind of cusp between Boomer and Gen X and then Gen X, I think the affirmative action conversation was really um, uneven. It depended where you grew up. If it was Houston, it sounded one way. If it was LA, it sounded a different way. Mm -hmm. One of the surprises I had when I first landed at, at Yale and New Haven back in um, the uh, fall of 19, 1980 was that uh, all these Chicanos and Chicanas from the, from the Valley, they were just more, they were more politically aware more politically active, they had they understood why affirmative action was so necessary, and they, mm. they understood why uh, what it meant uh, to be at Yale. And I was just kind of coming out of this parochial uh, Catholic system, mm. and I, I just felt I just felt lucky to get out of get out of town, you know. <laughs> and, but uh, but I but I was really surprised uh, how uh, clued in they were, and it wasn't until years later that I understood they were clued in because they were coming from a part of Texas that had been really politicized during the Chicano movement. Wow. And uh, the, uh, the the political activity there of, of the activists and educators really under, they, they, were, they were the ones that, they were the beneficiaries of all that groundswell mm -hmm. of activism around education. So they understood what it meant to be there. And uh, I, I literally profited from watching them and literally watching them, how they navigated the classroom, for example, and how they organized around Mecha and, and how they understood themselves Chicanos and Chicano power and all that. That All that, even though it was here in Houston, that was really not something that was exposed to in, in, my, in, in my friend circle or family circle. Mm -hmm. 
That's so powerful. And of course, with every sentence, we're unearthing more and more history that we want to delve into. So I'm going to invite folks to watch this interview at their leisure, share it in a class, and they can email us questions because unfortunately, we're going to resist all those amazing questions you brought up because they do lead up to uh, your amazing book. And I want to tell folks the title again, The Places of Modernity in Early Mexican Literature, 1848 to 1948. And I like to say that you're touching on a moment before we were a demographic. And I say that especially after our conversation right now, because I think if you are right now uh, a Latino, or if you are self, you, you, if you've um, reached self-determination, you call yourself Chicana, Chicano, uh, if you're aware of your history, we're still navigating identity terms mm -hmm. that mean one thing in this era after we've been defined as a demographic, for good and for bad. Um, is it fair to say that your book is touching on the moments before we became the demographic that we imagine ourselves somewhat now? I think so, Tony. I think if you, I'd like the way you use demographic in the sense that it, it, it it's it's about a certain kind of visibility that has kind of political ramifications or political efficacy. Uh, so we weren't a uh, we weren't a demographic in that sense in the years between between um, uh, 1848 and 1948. We were certainly uh, present, but uh, that presence wasn't really adding up to influencing politics, influencing policy at K through 12 uh, uh, standards in, in Texas. Um, it wasn't really influencing um, the racial discussions that were happening in the barrios versus the uh, other, other neighborhoods in Houston. Um, but certainly um, we, uh, we were growing as a community and in, in, in those 100 years and, and in certainly within the community we were a demographic um, i think it's interesting to look back and think about how people talked about themselves or, uh, and comunidad was a, a word colonia was a word barrio was a word um and in hyphenated terms like you like you were uh, already uh, referencing um, we're there already, whether you're Hispano-American or Spanish-American or Mexican-American, certainly those terms were, were there. But whether the rest of the country were aware of us, it wasn't really an awareness that, that now a demographic uh, label attaches. Now, uh, you know, we're the, we're the, the next uh, biggest uh, minority voting bloc, uh, we're the shapers of the next political generation. Um, we're, we're the people, uh, peoples whose um, complexities are both uh, problematic to some other communities, but also exciting to uh, most communities. So it, we, weren't, we weren't exciting to all communities in, in those first 100 years. And, also, along those same lines, I'd love for you to break down for our um, for our viewers and listeners why you focus on those 
100 years and that reveals so much about the the main point of the book yeah i i you know i took a lot this book took me a long time to research and it took a long time to write and then when it came down to figuring out how to give it its final shape i realized that the um field of mexican-american studies chicano studies chicanx studies uh hadn't really thought about it's a literary production or uh, uh, print production, print culture, in terms of the, the first 100 years. And I looked at all the work I had in this manuscript, and I said, oh, I am talking about the first 100 years. And in, and in my mind, too, I, I had uh, Marquez's uh, title for his famous novel, 100 Years of Solitude. So something about the, the kind of uh, range that 100 year gives a, a re potential reader, but also something about that solitude of Marquez's book also resonated for me in terms of uh, giving it a, a subtitle for this book, because certainly the people who I talk about, the writers that I talk about, the communities I write about in this book, they, they knew each other. It's just that they existed in this somewhat heavily uh, heavily segregated, heavily uh, supervised uh, divisions in, uh, in the time period between eight, those first 100 years. So there was a kind of artificial solitude that people had to work with and work against. And anyway, so that that's how it came together. And also there's an interesting moment in 1948 when all the Chicano vets are coming back from service during World War II and in, in the uh, Chicano and Chicano historians have talked about the, the Mexican, what they call the Mexican generation after, right after the war. And that became a, a good place to stop because that's when exactly, that's exactly when the idea of a, of a Chicano community or Chicano community became, was becoming more and more prevalent. And you can really see in my research, I can really see the difference that happens after 1948. So I say, okay, this is a good place to stop. And perhaps there's another book there between 1948 and 1968, but I'll leave that for another day. Awesome. I think we got an exclusive there. Yeah. <laughs> the preview of the other book. Now, the, I think folks, especially from Texas, should be really part of the book. And California should be part of the book because you are – turning on its head an approach that I think hurts us as Tejanos, Californios, in that you're attacking regionalism, approaching it in a certain way where I think in the modern day, you know, one quick example, um, if you're talking about visual art movements mm -hmm. and you have a, a discussion about, uh, you know, Chicana, Chicano visual artists from Houston, your mainstream art institutions look down on it for reasons that it are regional and that that's, this is not the region considered right. uh, fertile or important. Um, and we on the ground know that that's not the case. Talk to a little about that regionalism and how it does affect how we're perceived and, and how you approach it a very different way in, in your book. Well, I think, I think the traditional kind of U S popular culture sense of Mexican-American regionalism is that uh, quote-unquote Mexicans live in places like San Antonio or uh, Los Angeles, uh, uh, Albuquerque, um, yeah, but the 
the regionalism that the recovery project has helped me to understand is that uh, certainly places like San Antonio or, or LA, Albuquerque are really important to Mexican American history, but these are all these other sites of growth uh, around, around community, around labor, around arts, literature, uh, newspapers, and these are the places like uh, Houston. Uh, they weren't instantly traditionally understood as Mexican, but that over time became increasingly quote unquote Mexican. And there's also this older regionalism that the book tries to sort of shed light on. And that was the regionalism that came out of the, the Spanish colonial uh, matrix uh, of, from between 1492 to 1821. And then on top of that, a kind of Mexican ge uh, geographic imaginary that also understood its Northern territories as El Norte, right? And so what's fascinating about doing the kind of research or teaching the kind of books that I can I teach it, uh, here at Rice is that you're always somewhere, but in some ways that somewhere it's almost always at the same time getting destabilized. So you really have to know your history, like if it's before 1821, it's it's this it's the Spanish uh, the Spanish crown controls things. It's if if it's after 1821, it's the Mexican Republic that controls things. If it's after 1848, it's this U.S. Uh, Anglo-American regime that controls things. So um, by controlling, I mean understanding the 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 logics of 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 how people live how people uh, did commerce, how people understood the laws, how they show up in court. Uh, literally, it's very different. And so some of the regional uh, habits that remain after 1848 uh, end up becoming terms like uh, Tejano, Tejana, or, uh, or in California, Los Californios. These are all names and language that resonate about a prior past. And so I, what I guess what's really different about my use of regionalism is that it's a it's never static, uh, and it's always evolving, and it has a lot of to do with movement of people, um, but and I with people ideas move, and uh, what's really great about this research that that I was able to do, is that when people move from um, one region to another or from Mexico to to the United States. They, they, they motivate people to write. And that was the fascinating thing about this project is to ask the question, you know, why do people write? Why did they set up all these newspapers through uh, all these cities from Brownsville to San Francisco and California? Why do they write when they understood, they understood clearly that they, the rest of the country looked at them as second-class citizen, uh, not capable of the, all the rights and privileges of citizenship? But people decided to write and create newspapers and uh, and uh, set up their own schools for their children because they understood that writing was one of the ways, at least one of the ways to to create community, but also to pass on uh, the, the best parts of their traditions uh, to the future.
And I'm going to give you fair warning. After this question, I'm going to ask you to, to read an excerpt from the okay. book. I want to remind folks, too, that we're chatting with Dr. Jose Aranda. He's a tenured professor and Chicano at Rice University. We're talking about his amazing book, The Places of Modernity in Early Mexican Literature, 1848 to 1948. And as I, by the way, you can take his classes. Oh, my gosh. That's got, that's got to be so awesome to, to take a class with you. Um, but I, I remember as I was reading the book, too, I felt that you know, founding Nuestra Palabra was unearthing some of these issues. You were kind of explaining, you're kind of explaining so much to me when I was reading the book, because one of the reasons to start Nuestra Palabra is there wasn't a evident voice for Latino writers. Mm -hmm. um, and as you talk about regionalism, as you talk about identity, as you talk about the role of writing, that to me, reveal just some of the deeper issues. It isn't just about corporate New York not publishing our voices. That's part of it. But it's all these other layers as well that really makes it clear to me what a challenge it is. But also, because I don't want to leave people depressed. I want people to be fired up because I get so excited when I read your book. Um, it's also exciting because that's what we're overcoming. And to me, when we organically bring it together. We've been doing it. When I read your book, I'm like, we've been doing this. Yeah. We've been a gente beforehand. We don't need all that other stuff. Yeah, it, it, it is a weird, I know it's a weird feeling of history to both understand that the community has been as strong as you can imagine it and that its members have been diverse as you can imagine it. And and alive and engaged, as you can imagine it. But at the same time, depending on the historical moment, completely isolated, completely abandoned by the federal government, completely ignored by other power structures, whether it's Madison Avenue in New York City or any, any great university uh, then or, or now. Or now. Um, and so when I look at this material that the recovery project that Nicholas Canelos and others have brought to help us bring together, I feel alive. I feel like centered. But when I, when I move my head elsewhere, I feel all, all instantly shut down and dislocated. So part of the reason to do this kind of work and to teach this kind of work coming out of the recovery project is, like you said, to remind us yeah, we, we, we have a very uh, rich and healthy uh, history and, and deep traditions and um, scores and scores of writers and, and lawyers and politicians and all that. Uh, but this kind of artificial amnesia that we tend to trip out into once we leave the barrio or we close the book uh, is a function of a, a much um uh, older, deeper, and yet active um, hostility uh, to what our communities and very similar uh, Latinx communities have been producing uh, forever. And so um, I think that your work, Tony, is always about working against this uh, artificial amnesia. So um, um, it, we're part of a, a bigger impulse that's been there 
for such a long time and it will be there for uh, a few more years at least. I hope it's short, but I have a feeling it's going to be a little longer. Well, uh, on that note, I would love for you to read an excerpt from uh, from the book, The Places of Modernity in Early Mexican Literature, 1848 to 1948. Dr. Aranda, reading an excerpt for All us. All right. So this is, I'm going to read um, from my, I think this is the uh, third chapter. This is a chapter where I feature the the interesting work that the granddaughter of M.G. Vallejo of California, the granddaughter, her, her name is Francisca Vallejo, was doing in the 1930s. And she's a mature writer, musician, uh, a musical composer by, by this time. But um, she had a radio show. And so in honor of your radio show, I thought I would read this expert. Um, on the night of May 25th, 1936, at 7.45 p.m. on Radio KYA, Francisca Vallejo began her first episode of a radio program to which listeners could dial in three times a week to hear her narrate old California stories. Perhaps such uh, listeners would do so to forget for a, a moment the economic depression they were enduring. Perhaps they would dial in to drown out the news of mass deportation of Mexican and Mexican-Americans on the one hand, or the unprecedented number of Okies and Arkies migrating from the drought-stricken dust bowl of the Great Plains on the other. Or perhaps they dialed in just curious to hear what the granddaughter of Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo had to say. And I'm going to quote her now. This is her, and this is what she said, or some version of what she said that night back in 1936. Buenas noches, amigos. Good evening, friends. This is Francisca Vallejo speaking. It is my privilege to announce that I should bring to you a series of programs which I have written around the history and romances of our wonderful California. We shall dip into lore and legend, play her traditional music, and learn to learn to know her with a deep understanding and affection. Occasionally, I may present one of my own compositions, and from time to time, I shall speak to you of Chamberlain's Lotion, which is sponsoring these programs. I know you are going to share my enthusiasm for this splendid product. I just give it a uh, just give it a trial, unquote. For the rest of the 1936 into 1937, Francisca Vallejo will regale her listeners with stories of old California, its discovery and the establishment of the mission system, tales of bandits, romances, native legends, and seminal moments like the uh, bear uh, bear flag revolt. Along the way. Vallejo writes episodes devoted to the flora and fauna and ecosystems reminding her listeners of the national treasures of California. We would call it environmental writing today. Local tribes are also featured as well as details about ranch life and domestic homemaking by the Donas. Hers is an insider journey into a past well trodden by historians of the period. Whatever novel content she provides is by virtue of her family genealogy and intimate access to her father's Platón Viejo's rich recollection of her grandfather, Guadalupe Vallejo. Embedded here and there of Francisco Vallejo's subtle but clear family grievances, grievances she literally airs over the airways, squatters, land grant disputes, and unscrupulous lawyers find their way into her program. 
And so I'll stop right there. And so I, I, I bring that, I read that section, Tony, because in many ways you are part of a very long um, radio slash journalistic slash activist tradition of telling stories back to our community and also encouraging our communities to learn more about, about their rich uh, ethnic past. That's amazing. I'm so glad you read that because I was enthralled by it in the book. I wanted to ask you that questions, but it does give me a chance to, to remind our listeners, <laughs> we don't have sponsors, which may explain, especially in light of that, um, why we are, I think we're the only FM radio show in Houston that can do the programming that we do, which is our terms on our terms, our community on our terms. And of course, um, for KPFT, we go to the, the listeners. So I want to remind listeners, um, if you can, please make a donation to KPFT. You can visit kpft.org and click on the donation button or the tip jar. Make a donation in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. But Again, I was going to ask you about that because I was enthralled by that. Because here you have a a, a a woman on air navigating exactly like you're saying, because you got to pay the bills. If, if she doesn't have a sponsor, she's not going to be on air. And she's got to talk about topics that will interest the listeners. But still, she adds some of the social issues. She adds some of the historical issues that won't get play any other way. Exactly. Uh, and, and she was already part of a family tradition that was doing this one way or the other, but uh, she was at that moment, the most um, uh, capable uh, of that Vallejo family. And certainly that's a family that already had lots of privileges, a lot of, a lot of privileges that a lot of people uh, would object to now. Yeah. Uh, but she was in a position to do something and, and make an argument to all her all her listeners about this uh, older um, California Mexican Spanish uh, indigenous past that by the by the mid 1930s was already getting commodified in, in architecture commodified in all sorts of uh, uh, romance uh, films uh, from Hollywood. Um, and also uh, commodified in the sense that um, uh, that that was the past and that California's future was going to go somewhere else. She was in so many ways saying that California's future was already uh, predicated by people like her family uh, and uh, newer people of Mexican descent who were arriving in, in California daily either from Mexico or from other places in the Southwest at the time. So she was part of that very forward-looking generation of, of, uh, of Mexican-American women who understood that there was a need to um, uh, not only tell stories, but make sure that the stories went somewhere, that got institutionalized, got archived, uh, became part of a, 
a broader narrative that, that was not so easily uh, sequestered in some dusty bin or some uh, forgotten ar ar archive. And, you know, we're going to have to appeal to the listeners here because we're getting some great reactions. <laughs> we got a uh, Chicano visual artist, uh, Rigo uh, Miller, dear friend of the show. Uh, he just posted, this is awesome. <laughs> it means you, Dr. Aranda. And I uh, want to give a shout out to, to Sandra Jean Torres. She's saying, bring it to San Antonio. Also, I got to give a shout out to the Latino Bookstore. I'm proud to be literary curator for the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And your book is in stock. And if enough people demand it, we'll have to keep getting more of it. But we got to get you on the road to San Antonio también. But uh, <laughs> you're know, giving us an eso. Así. Así. Gracias. I feel like Johnny Canales. The literary Johnny Canales for a little bit. People can Google who he was. <laughs> oh, he was big. <laughs> right for music not books but i i almost but um i do want to talk more about that because to me it was fascinating to hear how even at that moment we weren't a demographic we're talking about regionalism but there was a um a mainstream romanticizing of our history and culture in a way for profit for products for right. tourism and here she's got to ride that fine line where she plays into it, but she still wants the authentic story to come out. You, you break that down really well in the book. Tell us a little more about it. And, and I think the listeners want to hear you read more, but hey, that's just me. Oh, that's really nice of them. Well, I, I, I think that's one of the good things about looking at the first 100 years of, the, uh, of these diverse Mexican-American communities, because you really do find a range of actors or agents. Uh, one of, one of the privileges I have as an educator is having access to a lot of this uh, these archives. And one of the best archives that's come out of the Recovery Project is the collection on Mex on Spanish uh, Spanish uh, um, the Spanish speaking press, Spanish reading press of the United States. And uh, when you look at the newspapers, whether it's in the 1800s or the early 1900s or the mid, uh, mid uh, or the uh, mid 20th century, you realize very quickly that uh, these people, that the people who are uh, producing these newspapers and the people who are buying these newspapers um, occupy a range of political ideologies. Uh, they're not, it's not, it's both homogeneous in a sense, but very heterogeneous. And so a person like Francisca Vallejo, on the one hand, uh, fairly, coming out of a fairly elite California landed gentry of, uh, uh, before 1848, but then after 1848, they, they lose their lands. Um, there were lands that were unseated indigenous uh, lands anyway. And yet, they, they, you know, they instantly move from being colonizers to being colonized to being cultural producers in the 1930s. That telling a complicated story, and I think in many ways the uh, the reason I wanted to put this book out is to reflect that back into our late 20th century, uh, early 21st century communities, and very very complex communities right now uh, on a political scale. We're very complex in terms of cultural production. We're very complex. The mediums have been uh, 
blown up. We have print culture. We have uh, filmmaking. We have uh, all sorts of social media sites, uh, YouTube. You know, people are producing things for YouTube all over the place. And so there's not. If so, if back then there wasn't one way of characterizing what was the Mexican American community, except for its you know, obvious Spanish language or uh, historic ties to Mexico. Today, we're also equally or more more unequally diverse than ever at the same time. And yet, we all are connected uh, precisely because we, we are, are forced artificially to struggle with our, our Mexican heritage in a, in a, in ways that the, the 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 broader hegemony asks us to give up our identities, give up our Spanish, give up our traditions, uh, and and in some ways give up our diversity as well among ourselves. Just become one thing. I love it, and I think those are great um, uh, facets to bring up. And unfortunately, we can't read your whole book out to the audience. And we gotta, we gotta, we gotta sell some books, so people gotta pick. Up, I encourage people to pick up your book to support local bookstores like yeah. the Latino Bookstore San Antonio, Casa Ramirez in Houston, and any of your other favorite small local bookstores. But I want to close with the following question. Um, you learn from the past, and this is from Roxana, our producer. You learn from the past. What do you recommend Latino youth to read now or pay attention to? Oh, thank you, Roxana. Ah, uh, it. You know what? I think some basic thing needs to happen for all our youth, since especially in a place like Texas. And Tony, you know this better than I do. All the the, the funding that's been going on for the last 30 years, it feels like it, what, we need to help our, our, our kids just basically read whatever they wanna read. But if you go to libraries and I recommend that, or bookstores, I recommend that too, uh, you just need to guide our young ones to the sections where we show up. It's plain and simple. Th these are the sections that are for us. Go to the website of uh, Arte Publico Press. You will see there, there's uh, uh, so many titles there for, for children, for, for young adults, and of course for adults. Um, there is really not the same lack of opportunity to, to, to read uh, about our communities. And I think, um, thankfully, there are more people of Mexican descent, Latinx descent, and in, in, uh, colleges, universities, community colleges, uh, just go to school, stay in school. And if you see a brown person in front of you in, uh, in front of you in the classroom, uh, uh, thank them for being the teachers. We all need more teachers like them. I love it. And we're going to give the last word to Sandra Jean Torres. She says she'll definitely buy the book. Oh. We need to be educated on our history 
so we could make life better for our youth and ourselves. Uh, we've been chatting with Dr. Jose Aranda. We're talking about his book, The Places of Modernity in Early Mexican Literature, 1848 to 1948. I'm Tony Diaz, Libro I want to say thank you to our producers, Roxana Guzman, Rodrigo Bravo, to the whole Nuestra Palabra team. We appreciate you tuning in. And of course, this will be airing across several platforms. You can email us if you enjoyed the interview to ask more questions, the follow-up. And in closing, Dr. Aranda said it, support our writers and our literature. Thank you so much for all you do, Dr. Aranda. Gracias. Thank you, Tony. Roxana Guzman, who is our producer for our social platform broadcast. Also, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes our show and audio for KPFP 90.1 FM. Mark Andre Pignon is our graphics designer. Ramos Ortiz is in charge of our search engine optimization. And of course, you dear listeners are always supporting us. Thanks a lot, and we look forward to seeing you at the arts.